Amen. On Tuesday, February 25th, 2003, there was a 17-year-old girl named Ashley Hartman, and she was in the top 32 of the American Idol competition. Does anybody remember that? There's no reason you should remember. And I'll tell you why you should not remember it. But Ashley Hartman was 17 years old, and she performed. She made the top 32 seemingly uh, without uh, any reason. And so she made it, and she's giving her semifinal performance. And she sings. And then the judges had to tell her how she did. And the first two judges, they were trying to be gracious and kind. And they were... Uh, what, what, what was the first one? Uh, uh, what's, what's the guy's name that says dog all the time? Randy. Randy Randy started talking and he was like, you know, the whole voice thing, I'm not really sure about that. <laughs> this is American Idol. She said, but, he said, but you're really beautiful. And then, and then the, the lady, Paula Abdul, she started talking and she said, you know, you just, you really do, you really are pretty. And, the, and, and you know who the third person is, right? Simon Cowell, Simon Cowell, he has a way of not buttering it up, not beating around the bush, getting straight to the point. And he said this, when you started to sing, the first thing that went through my mind was, you sound like someone who should be singing on a cruise ship. And then halfway through the song, I imagined the ship was sinking. That's exactly what he said. That is a hard saying. That is a hard saying. It's true. But it's hard. And this is what our Lord is going to do. He's going to be a little bit even more forward than Simon Cowell is. Some people didn't like Simon Cowell. And maybe he could have, maybe he was a little rough around the edges. But you, you weren't, you, you never were questioning what he thought about you whenever you were on the American Idol show. He let you know whether you were going to make the cut or whether you should even be on the show. And she did not make the vote. And she didn't move on to the next round. And that's why you have never heard of her. And Jesus, in this section in John 6, verses 41 through 71, as we talked about last week, he is, he is going to amp up and dig his heels even deeper in his communication, in his conversation with this group of superficial followers. And these are the followers that he confronted last week. We talked about last week that he was a skilled surgeon that, that cut through the layers of things that were on uh, that, that, that were in the heart of these followers and he uncovered the reality that they were superficial. Do you remember last week whenever they went looking for Jesus and he had fed them the day before? They woke up, they're looking for him. they like, where is Jesus? He's nowhere to be found. They see that the boats had gone into the other side of the sea. They get in the boat, they go and they, they, they find Jesus and they say, Jesus, how did you get here? When did you come here? And he doesn't dialogue with them. About any of that, he looks straight at them and says, you are not seeking me because you believe. You're seeking me because your bellies were filled. He cuts with his knife of precision and omniscience, and he knows their heart. And so, so these are the people that he's having this conversation with. And so he's letting them know that they're not there for the reasons that they should be there. They're not following him because they believe he's the son of God, the holy one of God. They're following him because they're looking for what he can do for them. 
And Jesus is going to say some things that are going to be even more hard for them to hear. If we thought that was difficult, the exposure of their hypocrisy, he's going to dig his heels even deeper. But the point of it all is so that they would see who he is and they would come to know him as the son of God. And those difficult words that he will say, they will bring separation between those who are genuine in their belief and those who are not. This is what we're going to see. And if I would say what the main point of this message would be in one sentence, it would be this. The main point of this whole conversation from beginning of John 6 until the end of John 6, it would be this. Being a true disciple of Jesus means that you come to him on his terms. Being a true disciple of Jesus means that you come to him. You seek him on his terms, not on your terms. They were seeking him and following him on their terms. We want you to do for us what we want. We want you to feed us. We want you to be our king. What was happening? They wanted to make him king. They wanted them to feed him. Feed, they, they wanted him to feed them some more. But to be a true disciple, Jesus will show them is that you have to come to me and follow me on my terms. And this is what we will see. This skilled surgeon who dissected the superficial motives of those that were following him this week, we will see that after the surgery of the heart, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that Jesus is going to make a diagnosis. He did the surgery and covered the hypocrisy, but he's going to make a diagnosis. He's going to write a, a, a prescription. And then there's going to be a response to the diagnosis and to the prescription. So let's look at the text. Let's get through these 30 verses. We're going to break it down into those three areas, the diagnosis, the prescription, and the response. So here's the first point today. Jesus gives his diagnosis of the superficial followers. John 6, starting in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven and Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will be they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they, and they died. And they died. Jesus makes his diagnosis. Well, let's get to the diagnosis. But before we get to his diagnosis, what he has, what he said in this text, the Jews were grumbling. They were grumbling. What does it mean to grumble? To, be gr- to, to grumble means is to make complaining remarks or noises under one's breath. That's what it means to grumble. You've done that before, haven't you? It's like you just, you know, we, we had a neighbor. I don't know if he's watching. Well, our live stream's down, so he's not, probably not watching. But uh, our neighbor yesterday, he was grumbling. I came out in the morning on the patio. Steph was like, he was working on something, and he was grumbling, and then he started yelling. But you've all grumbled, right? Something's not going your way. You're upset about a situation. You're grumbling under your breath to make complaints. They were muttering. They were murmuring. What were they complaining about? What were they grumbling under their breath about? I mean, picture the scene. Jesus tells them when he gets them to the point last week in the text, he says, when they said, give us this bread always, the bread that if they eat it, they'll never hunger nor thirst. 
He says, okay, okay, you want the bread? I am the bread of life. And then they're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this guy. What in the world? That's what it was like. That's what the text says. They murmured, they grumbled under their breath because he said, I am the bread of life. That's why they grumbled, because I am the bread come down from heaven. Why did this bother them? Why did it bother them? Well, the next verse tells us it bothered them because what did they say? Why were they grumbling? Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Okay, so now we know what they were saying. Give us this bread always, okay? I am the bread of life. Come down from heaven. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus is is not Mary's son? Wait, wait a minute. That's what they were saying. They were mumbling under their breath to each other, murmuring, complaining. Wait a minute. That's that's Joseph and Mary's son. The bread come down from heaven. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? He's the bread come down from heaven. He has eternal life. He is the eternal bread. I am the bread of life. Who does he think he is? Are you kidding me? He thinks he is the bread of life. He didn't come down from heaven. He came from Mary's womb. Who does he think he is? And, and Jesus says this to them in essence, don't grumble among yourselves. The fact that I came down from heaven has nothing to do with your opinion about me. It has to do with my father. And this is what Jesus says. Look at the next verses. In response to their grumbling about the reality and their indifference, because they're looking at him and saying, well, we know his mother and we know his father. We know that he was born of Mary. Like, so what is he saying? This guy's lost his mind. Jesus says this. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Wow. No one comes to the father comes to the father unless the father draws him first no one comes to the son unless the father draws him first wow what a statement truly truly i say to you whoever believes has eternal life no one comes to the son unless the father draws him and anyone who believes has eternal life I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is his response to their grumbling. He says, it's not about your fathers. It's not about your fathers in the wilderness. It's not about the bread that they gave you. I am the bread of life. And as a matter of fact, you can't even come to me unless my father draws you. And unless you believe in me, you will not have eternal He tells them three things in those verses. Whoever believes in him has eternal life because he is a bread of life. Secondly, he tells them they are spiritually dead like their ancestors were physically dead. You can't come to me unless my father draws you and I have eternal life. And your fathers died in the wilderness eating the bread from Moses. It's a picture. He's not talking about physical things in this whole conversation he's talking about bread because they are wanting to talk about bread he's using bread as an analogy to eternal life and he's saying he's saying your fathers died by eating moses's bread and so you are dead too spiritually like they were dead physically and thirdly he's saying pretty clearly and strongly your fathers died because moses cannot save my father is the only one who can save Jesus gives them their diagnosis. They don't think that they're sick. They don't think that they have a problem. And Jesus is bringing this to the service. He's confronting them. He's letting them know that they are dead, just like their fathers in the wilderness died. So here's the diagnosis. You are dead just like your earthly fathers. 
my heavenly father is the only one who can save you and give you eternal life. But you don't even understand your true condition. Spiritually dead, dead, dead. You know, everybody apart from God's saving work in their life is dead spiritually. We're not halfway dead. We're not, we're not just kind of, uh, um, you know, making it along in this life. Uh, without God on our own and, and we have some good works that are making us good with God because of our good works. No, apart from Christ and his work of righteousness paid that was paid for for us on the cross, we are completely dead. We're dead. And every human being that's ever born, just like these superficial followers of Jesus are dead in their sins, everyone apart from Christ is dead in their sins. This is the spiritual condition of all of humanity and this is the diagnosis that christ is placing right in front of them in this dialogue your fathers died in the wilderness from the manna that moses gave them and you're dead as well and i'm the only one that can give you life we see this diagnosis all over scripture look at ephesians 2 what does ephesians 2 say it says and you were you can say it you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by, by nature, this was natural, by nature, children of wrath. We were dead, and we were by nature, children of wrath. That's what the scripture says. Romans 1 and 2, if you read Romans 1 and 2, it's, it's the argument that all are guilty. Romans 1, 2, and 3, all are guilty. Starts with those who don't want anything to do with God, those that are, those that are unrighteous, they're guilty. Those that are pagan and non-religious, they are guilty. Romans chapter 1 and 2. Then we get to chapter 3. What about the religious? Are they guilty? What then? Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are, are, the, are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Wow, that is a charge against humanity. Those that are unrighteous, we we would say those aren't good people. And and those that don't want anything to do with God, they're non-religious, clearly they're not good. But even the religious Jew in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul makes the argument, says that none are righteous, none are good, no one does good, no one seeks after God. No one, all were born in sin. The the prevailing idea about us as human beings is that we were born with a clean slate and and that we are basically good. And that it is an evil society that corrupts innocent children who then become evil and do evil things. But the question you have to ask yourself, if we are basically good and it is an evil society that corrupts innocent people, is how did this, this society become evil? The society became evil because God's word is true. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. We were born with sinful natures, with a propensity to sin. So societies are evil because... Because countries are evil. And countries are evil because communities are evil. And communities are evil because families are evil. And families become evil because individuals are evil and have a sinful nature. 
Do you, do you follow that? Do you follow that, that track? And this is the, the diagnosis he wants these superficial followers to see is that, that you are dead in your sins and you will die in your sins just like your physical fathers died in the wilderness. Moses and the law cannot save you. I am the only one that can save you. And this is the diagnosis for all of humanity. All are evil apart from Christ. All have a sinful nature apart from Christ. I'll say it like this. An evil society is like fertilizer that gives the sinful nature of man the nutrients it needs to produce an abundant harvest of unrighteousness. Did you catch that? An evil culture that is bent towards sin and unrighteousness is like fertilizer that gives the sinful nature of man the nutrients it needs to produce a a harvest of unrighteousness. And we, where we are as a, as a society is because people have rejected the authority of God and his word. And this is the diagnosis. All are guilty. All are born in sin. All have a sinful nature. All, apart from Christ, have the stain of sin on their soul. And this is a hard diagnosis from the Lord. This is what he is bringing before them confronting them with and it's it's not even going to let up as we get to the the prescription you think the prescription would be a little easier but you'll see in in a minute that the prescription is not any easier he's letting them know that you are not going to make it by eating the bread in the wilderness from moses or your forefather's faith it's going to be because of me without me you have no hope all are guilty all had the stain of sin it would be like this. Let's say you're working out in your yard. It's been hot lately, has it not? Oh, my goodness. It's been hot. And I cut the grass. I did the, well, Joel cuts the grass. I do the weed eating and the trimming and the spraying of the, of the weed killer. And so I'm out there, and I go out at like 5.30, and I go from 5.30 to 6.30, and I'm just drenched in sweat. And then I come in, and I shower, and I go back out at 7.30 to blow everything and get all the grass out. And I... I'm sweating all over again from 7.30 to 8. It's hot. So you're out there working. Let's say somebody came up to me and said, Ben, here's an ice cold glass of lemonade. It'd be so refreshing. But before you drink it, just know that I put just a tiny little bit of poison. 99.9% of that glass of lemonade is great. And I took a little bit this little baby dropper and I put a little bit of drop of poison. So the question I would ask is, is that really true? If you put the poison in the glass of lemonade, is it true that 99.9% of that is not poisonous once you put the poison in? Is, is, is that true? No. In actuality, 100% of the drink is poisoned. And this is the reality of our human nature apart from Christ's intervention. We are all born stained with the poison of sin and a sinful nature. We can say, well, I'm 99.9% good. I just got a little bit of that of sin going on. The poison of sin stains all that we are. And the only remedy is Christ. And Jesus gives his diagnosis, but then he gives his prescription. Let's go on to the next section here. He writes his prescription. Jesus writes a prescription for their healing. He gives them their diagnosis. They are dead in their sins and they will die like their fathers in the wilderness. They can't live off of Moses. It is me. I am the bread of life. And then he writes the prescription for their healing. Let's continue on in this conversation. 
John 6, starting in 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I'm just going to pause there for a second. I just love the Lord and the way he handles situations. So again, they didn't say that they were kind of murmuring, but it's kind of the same type of thing going on here. It says they disputed among themselves. So he tells them the only way that you're going to have life is if you is if you have my flesh. They're like, wait a minute, how is this guy going to give us his flesh to eat? They're talking amongst themselves. Jesus steps up and says, okay, truly, truly, let me clarify for you. Let me get some clarification of what I'm really saying. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Yes, I was really saying that. That's, that's what that statement means. They disputed among themselves. Is he, is he a man? Give us his flesh? Yes, let me clarify for you. That is what I'm saying. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And at this point, if you're a visitor here today, you're thinking, I don't know if I should stay here any longer. That's how they thought. And look at the next verse. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to that? Who can listen to it? You know, it's interesting. Before we unpack this prescription that he gives of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And what does he really mean by that? The diagnosis leads to the prescription. But a part of the prescription is to believe the diagnosis. Do you you get that? A part of being a Christian, becoming a Christian, is to believe the diagnosis. One of the biggest hindrances to people coming to faith is that they don't believe what Scripture says about all being guilty apart from Christ. They don't even believe the diagnosis, so they can't ever really get to the prescription because they don't believe correctly about who they are. So a part of the prescription really is to believe the diagnosis. People must come to terms with the reality of their true condition. So the prescription, we just read it. Truly, truly, this is the prescription. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink His blood, you have no life. This is a hard saying, they said. Who can listen to it? Notice what the text says after this. But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? I'd be like, yes, I do take offense at this. So, so what did Jesus mean by this shocking statement of eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Is that, is that what we're to do, right? Is that what they were called to do, to eat his flesh and drink his blood? I mean, Christians throughout human history, I cannot eat his flesh and drink his blood. He lived once, he died once, he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven. We can't eat his flesh and drink his blood every day to have life in us. That's not, he's using physical analogies to point to spiritual realities, And they were wanting to talk about bread. They're looking for him because of bread. He says, okay, let's talk about bread. The bread in the wilderness will not give you life. It is me. I am the bread and you must eat me. You must believe in me. This is what he is meaning. But notice what he says in verse 63 to give some answer to us. Do you take offense at this? Verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is no help. I'm not talking about flesh here. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. It's his words. It's the truth of the gospel. It's his words that are spirit and that are life. It's his words that lead to eternal life. It's his words. So what is the prescription? Is is the prescription to take the Lord's Supper and to be saved? Do we believe that? No. The body and the blood, the the, the wafer and the juice do not become the body and the the real blood of Christ. We're not re-sacrificing Christ every time we take communion. Hebrews tells us that that is not possible, that there was a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And Christ sat down, no more need for sacrifice. He's pointing to his words, his truth, the truth that he speaks. The prescription for everyone that is dead in their sins is to listen and to believe the words of Christ. In essence, Jesus is saying this. Are you taking offense at my shocking statement? Your fathers ate manna and died. And, and I am the eternal bread that you must eat and to have eternal life. And you're stuck on earthly reality. So here's an earthly picture. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood if you want to live eternally. It's not through Moses. It's not through the law. Salvation is through me. Believe that. This is what he's saying to them. Believe that. And you will have life. You are, you will die. Your diagnosis is you will die like your forefathers died eating the manna in the wilderness. And I'm here to be the eternal bread that if you will eat of me, if you will take part in me, if you will receive me, if you will believe me, you will truly live. You will truly live. This is a hard saying. You know, the words of Jesus are hard. The words of Jesus are hard. People don't mind his signs. You see all through scripture, these people didn't mind his signs, did they? Actually, they were there because of his signs. But when Jesus started talking, can you imagine the disciples? They were probably like, man, Jesus, stop talking. Stop talking. You could have been king just yesterday. You could have been king, Jesus. They were ready to make you king. You could have been king, but now you, you, would you quit talking? You're messing this up. He starts talking, and when he starts talking, he starts dividing, he starts separating, he starts getting through the weeds of those who really believe in him and those who really won't and don't. People will follow Jesus for his signs and they'll reject him for his sayings. They'll follow him for his works, but his words will, they will stumble over them. Signs versus sayings, works versus words. People love Jesus, even in our culture, even in a culture that is not motivated by Christ, but by Satan. People love Jesus because he did what? He fed the poor. He had compassion on the sick. He was gentle and loving. Yes, he was. He would eat with sinners. These are not just tolerable for the world, but they're celebrated. But the problem is, is that's not the full picture of who Christ is. The full picture of who Christ is, if you remove what he says from his actions, then you don't have the real Jesus. If you remove his words that we see in John 6 right here, if you remove those words, you don't have the real Jesus. You have another Jesus altogether. You have a cultural Jesus, a social Jesus, a Jesus that brings a social gospel to fix man's temporary earthly needs. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is not a fixing of social ills and issues. The gospel is eat my flesh, drink my blood so you can have eternal life.
I could feed you bread, but you're going to die. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to give you eternal life. When the real Jesus is put on display, when his words are read, when his message is made clear, that's when the anger surfaces. That's when the muttering starts. That's when the division takes place. How do we know that? Well, look at Matthew 10, 34. Listen to some more words of Jesus. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a a sword. People will say of Jesus, Jesus is a man of peace. He came to bring peace and unity. Because they ignore his words. What did he say there? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to separate and to divide and to, to make it clear that I am the way. That I am the truth. Look at John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Division, separation, not through Moses, not through earthly bread, not through the law, not through this faith, not through this religion, not through this false faith, this false religion, through Christ. Through Christ. You can't remove the the words of Christ from Christ and have the real Christ. Jesus is a disturber. Have you ever been disturbed? These people were disturbed. They were disturbed. They were, they were on the edge of their seat. They were angry. They were upset. Hey, this is the son of Joseph and Mary. How can he say that he's going to give us life? He's a disturber. Jesus is the great disturber. Jesus does bring peace with God, but it is a peace that comes through disturbance and repentance. He disturbs first and then he brings peace. He disturbs people to the place where they recognize their true diagnosis. And then repentance comes. And then peace comes. I love what the Bible exposition commentary says around this section in John 6. The preaching of the word of God always leads to a sifting of the hearts of the listeners. God draws sinners to the Savior through the power of truth, his word. Those who reject the word will reject the Savior. Those who receive the word will receive the Savior and experience the new birth, eternal life. The words of Christ, they're hard. They're hard for those that are not wanting to listen to them. They disturb the apple cart of self-righteousness. Kind of like the person you see putting together that swing set. Maybe that's you, dads. Maybe on Father's Day, you get to put together a swing set. Did, they, did, did your wife do that to you today? Do it for the kids. Happy Father's Day. Right? Or whatever it may be. A coffee table. You put something together. And you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. You don't have the instructions, but you know what you're doing. And you don't need any help. You've got this thing figured out. And you're working hard and you're working hard and you're doing what you got to do. Putting that swing set together. And somebody, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's someone else. They're looking at the instruction manual, right? And they don't want to disturb you, but they've got truth. They don't want to hurt your feelings, but they've got truth. They don't want to, they don't want to get you mad at them, but, but they've got truth. And the reality is, if you connect that analogy to spiritual realities, we have the instruction manual. We have the truth. And yes, it may take a disturbance. And maybe they'll be offended, not at us, but at the words of Christ. 
But if we don't disturb, if the wife doesn't disturb the husband in putting the swing set together wrong, somebody's going to get hurt, right? Somebody's going to get hurt. How much more will people eternally be hurt? You've got to bring the disturbance. We have to be willing to say, no, this is not right. This is wrong. You've taken Jesus in the gospel. You made it into something else. No, that's not right. This is wrong. This is not the right view of marriage and family. This is not the right view of gender and sexuality. This is not the right view of abortion. This is not the right view. This is, this is wrong. This is, this is not a biblical worldview. We, 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 we have to live this out. The diagnosis is what is true of all humans apart from Christ. The prescription is simple. It is easy, but it will disturb. And as Christians, I want to warn all of you here today. This is how we have to live this out. It will become increasingly challenging to live our faith in a secular world. There is a real time of testing coming for believers. The pressure is going to increase in the coming days for Christians to compromise their commitment to the clarity and the authority of Scripture. Look, we know what it says If you're faithful to the text, you know what it says. It is clear Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's clear that God made male and female. It's clear that God designed marriage a certain way. It's clear that sin is sin. It's clear that this is sin and this is rebellion against God. It's clear the truth claims of God and his word and creation and the gospel. Those things are clear. And we will either run and hide those truths in the secular age or we will be used by God to disturb so that Repentance and faith can come. Our call is to be courageous and faithful. We must be faithful to speak that truth in love. You guys, you guys heard of the new Lightyear, Buzz Lightyear movie coming out, right? I think there's some Muslim countries that are banning it because they have a same-sex kiss in it. It's a couple. I don't know if it's two men or two women, but it's a couple and they're kissing in the first 30 minutes of the movie. So there's actually, I think it's a Muslim country, but there's some other countries that are banning it. Our country won't ban it for sure. We're in the month of June. We're not going to ban that for sure. And Chris Evans, who's the voice of Buzz Lightyear in the movie, they asked him about it, about those people who were banning the movie. This is what he said. Those people are idiots. Every time there's been social advancement as we wake up, the American story, the human story, is one of constant social awakening and growth. Let's want to pause right here. You, you see the contrast here? The world's not socially awakening. The world is dead. And they're, they're, they're coming to life even more in their sin and unrighteousness, but they think they're coming awake and alive. But it's death warmed over. The human story is one of constant social awakening and growth, and that's what makes us good. There's always going to be people who are afraid and unaware and trying to hold on to what was before. What's, what, what, what was before? The, the word of God, the history of the scripture, the, the Judeo-Christian value of our country. That's what was before. But those people die off like dinosaurs. I think the goal is to pay, to pay them no mind. March forward and embrace the growth that makes us human. This is the world we live in. This is the reality. And we will either be faithful courageous or we won't the testing is coming the testing is coming will you come bail me out of jail if i go to jail right i'll come bail you out 
for being faithful. John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the diagnosis is clear. And it's, it, it, it is a difficult tension because we're not speaking truth because we don't like the world. We're not speaking truth. We're, not, we're, we're, we're speaking truth not because we, we think that they're There's just evil people that aren't deserving of anything. And we're just trying to rail against what's wrong and not biblical. No, we're speaking truth because we know that the only way that people can be born again and saved is through the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so may we never be someone who just rails against people. But may we be people who hold high the flag of the word of God. But we do it with compassion and love and grace and patience and peace. Now they may... It doesn't matter. We could be as peaceful as we want to be and as gracious as we want to be. It will be the words that will disturb. But may it never be said of us that it is the way we interact with the culture that disturbs them. May it be just the words of the scriptures. The diagnosis is clear for these superficial followers. They're spiritually dead, just like their forefathers are physically dead. The prescription is clear and it is shocking. Eternal life. Here's the shocking prescription. Eternal life comes through Christ and Christ alone here's the third point the third thing we see here's the response the true disciples receive the cure look at the text john 6 6 6 <laughs> i don't think there's anything uh, hidden, hidden meaning there but it is ironic john 6 6 6 after this hard saying right many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him after this hard saying After Jesus, the great disturber, disturbed the minds of those superficial followers, they left. They said, this is not what we signed up for. This is not it. We didn't sign up for this. What did they sign up for? They just wanted breakfast. They enjoyed the previous meal from Jesus, but they weren't interested in the meal that he was offering now. I'm not interested in that meal, Lord. (laughs) Uh, The bread was great. The fish was great. Never had something like that before. I'm not interested in what you're talking about now. And what did their walking away communicate? They walked away. This is a hard saying. We're, we're, we're out. This is what it communicated. Wait a minute. We thought you would make a great king. And we could use your miraculous power. And their free food's been great. But now you're talking about upsetting our view of God and how to receive eternal life. You're talking about a commitment we're not willing to give you. A commitment we're not willing to give you. We'll stick with bread from Moses. That's what, that's, that's, that's what they're saying. They turned back. They left. They were willing to commit as long as the status quo was met. As long as the status quo was met and Jesus didn't upset the apple cart of their religion, they would go along with Jesus. Just don't, don't start given these hard truths, just feed us, be our king, liberate us from Rome, status quo, keep meeting that. It's kind of like a prenuptial agreement. You guys know what that is, right? This is what a prenuptial agreement is. You say something like this, with this ring I thee wed, in sickness or in health, for better or worse, for better or worse. Wait, 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 stop, preacher. Only for better. And just in case we lose the better, my stuff is mine and you can't have any of it. That's a prenuptial agreement, right? I commit to you for life, but in case it gets bad, let's add that to the, let's add that to the vows. In case it gets bad. It's called, it should be labeled actually a just-in-case agreement. Just-in-case agreement. 
This is what these superficial followers wanted. Jesus gave them prescription, the prescription for their healing eternally, but they didn't want that. They wanted a just-in-case prenuptial agreement with Christ. We'll follow you as long as you feed us. We'll follow you as long as things are going well. We'll follow you as long as, as long as. And then you start talking hard things, and you start talking commitment and following you and eating your flesh and drinking your blood and downplaying Moses in the, the wilderness and what Moses did. Uh, no, just in case, no, we're, we're, we're out. We're, we're out. A genuine disciple of Christ rejects the phrase, just in case. Jesus gave them their true spiritual diagnosis. He told them how to remedy their spiritual problem. And in essence, they said, we only wanted a just in case commitment with you. So we're out. So who's going to respond? Well, they gave their response. That's the first response. They gave their response. They said, all right, Jesus, we're out. Well, here's the conclusion. Look at, back to the text, John 6, 67. Okay, so the superficial people left. It got too difficult to follow Christ. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? It's a valid question, wouldn't it be? If you're Jesus sitting there, you're thinking, okay, are, are the ones I've invested all my time in up to this point, are they going to go away? Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the, the words. Is it the flesh? Is it your blood? And he didn't talk about eating flesh or drinking blood. He said, no, you have the words of eternal And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love Peter's answer. Where are we going to go, Lord? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Is is, Is that you? Is that you as a believer here today? You've looked at different paths to this life and different belief systems and ideas to attach yourself to and you've you've looked at drugs or alcohol or 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 finding hope and peace and relationships and and pleasures and money and you you've looked at all those different options and 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 you've come away and you've looked at christ and his words and his and his gospel and you've looked at all those lesser things and you've said to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life we can go nowhere else to find peace we can go nowhere else to find joy Nowhere else. This is what Peter is saying. You have the words of eternal life. And notice what he says after. He says, because we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's not by accident he said Holy One. There's only one Holy One. And who is that? It's God. It's Jesus. They didn't say we've come to believe and to know that you're the Son of Man. They didn't even say we've come to know and to believe you're the son of God. They've said we have come to believe and to know that you are the holy one. The word holy is set aside for God. They saw him walk on the water. They saw him feed the 20,000 in the multitudes. They saw him do these signs and these miracles. And they, they, they heard his words. They were pierced to the heart. And they have come to know and to believe he's the holy one of God. To be a genuine disciple, you have to know who Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher, a good prophet, a social worker. He's the Holy One of God. To be a genuine disciple, you have to know who Jesus is and you have to trust Him completely. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. So this is the response of the true disciples. 
Now listen, listen. Listen to Jesus' response to this powerful declaration from Peter. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus is something, huh? Jesus, Peter makes this bold declaration. <laughs> we believe that you are the Holy One of God. And where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus says, Jesus says, I, did I not choose you? And yet one of you is a devil. <laughs> like what a response. What a response. Why did Jesus answer this way? I think verse 69 is the key. Look, look, look read, read again to what Peter said. And we. And we have believed and have come to know you're the Holy One of God. And we, you know, Jesus' answer to Peter's declaration is a great clarification for them and for us. And Peter said, and we have believed and we have believed. You know what Jesus' answer was when he says, hey, I've chosen you and one of you is a devil. You know what I think Jesus is saying there? He's telling Peter, you can't speak for the other 11. You can only speak for yourself. You can only speak for yourself. And the same is true for you today. I can't believe for you. Your parents can't believe for you. Your faith can't be your family's faith. You can't just be, have your family's faith. I come to this church because my family comes to this church. I believe in Jesus because my mom and dad believe in Jesus. They always taught me to believe in Jesus. No, that's not faith in Christ. That is a personal faith. You must believe in Jesus. Jesus says, no, Peter, it's not we. There's a devil in the crowd. He doesn't believe. You believe. And the other 11, the other 10 believe. What about you? Have you come to believe and to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Back to our main point of the message, being a true disciple means that you come to Him on His terms. You come to Him on His terms. And His terms are for you to acknowledge that you are sinful and in need of a Savior. His terms is for you to come to, the, to, the, to grips with the reality that you were born with a sinful nature and that without redemption, you are deserving of eternal judgment. His terms is for you to recognize that that is your reality apart from Christ. And His terms is that you would be disturbed by His sayings, that, that you would, it would make you uncomfortable when you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is true of me. Wait a minute, I believe He's the Son of God. Wait a minute, if that is true, he's the Holy One of God and this is who I am, then my only hope is to place my faith in what he did for me on the cross. Those are his terms. To recognize you're a sinner. To acknowledge and believe in who he is and what he's done for you. Being a true disciple means that you eat his flesh and drink his blood or you have no life in you. So what about you today? Do you believe? Have you come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Do you believe? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We got a word today. God demands a response of all of us in the room, God, as we walk through this text, God, we saw, God, the reality of two different types of people. God, go those, Father, that 
don't know you and reject you in this hard saying revealed the reality of their hearts. And God, for those there like Peter, God, who responded in a way of which showing that you are the Holy One of God. And God, that wasn't just for those disciples and those people in that day. God, that truth is still there for you and I. And God, as we as we walk out of this building, God, as we think deeply upon these words, God, I pray, Father, that our hearts would be moved. God, that any time we hear the word of God preached, God, we are to respond accordingly. God, if we are, first of all, here as a believer, God, and know this word to be true and believe that we have salvation in our hearts, and we're presented with a heart saying, God, we are to change. And if you truly are Lord, God, then we have to walk differently. But God, I know that there are people in this room here today as well, God, that are far from you. God, they don't know you. God, they've heard the word of the gospel preached here this morning. And God, I stand here, God, along with other believers in this room, and exhort you today, Father, today would repent and believe in the gospel. And just as Pastor Ben, Father, said, that they would confess their sin. God, that they would see their sin the same exact way God sees it. God, that it's completely against. Just as Jesus' words were a sword. And one that divides. One that brings clarity to the reality of our heart condition. And God, I pray, Father, that you would do just that. God, for the person sitting in the seat today, God, your Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. God, and we believe that you're doing that. And God, I pray that at the end of this service, Father, they would get up from their chair, Father. And they would hand it over to the welcome desk, God, to the person sitting next to them that's a believer. And they would say, oh, this saying's hard, but I recognize that he is the Holy One of God. And God, may me as a church, God, be busy about ministering to these people, God, discipling them, showing them who you are and the truth of your word. Oh, God, draw hearts just as you do. God, just as your word said, as you, re- as you repeated over and over in this section today. God, draw the hearts of those. And God, I pray that as they sit here today, God, that they would confess with their mouth. God, that they would repent of their sins and know, Father, that you are the Holy One of God. God, we are so thankful. God, for your word. God, we are so thankful for its ability. God, to cut between the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. God, a surgical scalpel. God, bringing pain to bring great healing eternally. God, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father, for the people that we know, Father, that you're going to save here today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I love you. See you next week.